Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah chapter 29 today. Jeremiah chapter 29. Greetings from the uh, North American Mission Board today. Your church and your pastor have a stellar reputation for generosity, giving to missions, and being involved in church planting. And I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for what you do. Your church and your leadership has such a kingdom impact in North America and beyond. So thank you so, so very much. As you have your Bibles and you open to Jeremiah chapter 29 this morning, I want to give you the title of my message, An Everyday Missionary in Babylon. An Everyday Missionary in Babylon is the title of my message today. We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 14 this morning. Stand with me as we read the word of the Lord together. This is the, le- this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa son of Shaphan and Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the letter stated, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says. Don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For this is what the Lord says, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. Lord, we pray this morning. Father, as we think about this passage and the reality, Lord, in times past, Father, in your judgment, Lord, your people were exiles in Babylon. Lord, not only a real place, God, but a picture in the Bible, a picture of wickedness. Lord, a picture of Satan. God, a picture of so many bad things. But Lord, you placed your people there. And God, you called your people to reflect your glory right where they were. 
Lord, I pray that this morning, God, as we hear your word, Father, your spirit would convict us, and God, we would be mindful. Lord, we are your missionary people. God, we are here on earth, Lord, to reflect your glory. God, wherever you would have us. And Lord, we would give such a testimony and a witness, God, that the watching world, Lord, would be stunned, God, by how we live, Lord, and who you are. So, Father, we pray today, God, you would use this. Lord, you would challenge the church family here. Father, they would recognize the opportunity they have, Lord, to be everyday missionaries, God, right where they are. Lord, that they would reflect your glory, God, and the watching world would see who you are and, Lord, be drawn to you. Lord Jesus, we love you. We ask you, Lord Jesus, to be glorified today. And all these things God's people said, amen. Four things from the text I want to give you very quickly this morning, and I'm going to give you some application points. Four things from the text that I want to give you this morning. Then I want to give you some application points. In verses 1 through 3, if you're taking notes, you can have the background of the letter. I'm going to summarize much of what I give you today. The background of the letter is just simply this. The kingdom of Judah found itself in exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar has taken some of the people from Judah, and he's taken them into Babylon. And there's a reason for this, by the way. Isaiah 49.6 says this. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. One of the things the Israelites cyclically struggled with was this. They were called to reflect the glory of the Lord. They were to live in such a way that the way they lived was different than all the other nations. And what we find out in this passage that Israel had not been doing that. The nation of Israel had not been reflecting the glory of the Lord. And part of what God is doing is he's using Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon to be an instrument of judgment for the people of Israel because they weren't reflecting the glory of the Lord. God's judgment is seen here. They were to reflect God's glory to other nations. They did not do that. One of the backgrounds in this passage, they became like the other nations. And we see God's judgment in this passage for the failure of Israel. The background of this passage also has two prophets. If you go back to chapter 28, you're going to find out about Hananiah. There's two dueling prophets in the context of this passage. You have the prophet Hananiah. He's the lying, deceiving prophet. Then you have the true prophet of God, Jeremiah. And the Israelites are listening to the false prophet. They're listening to the prophet that's telling a lie. He's actually telling Israel that everything's going to be okay. And in two years, they're going to come back home. If you look at the context of the passage and you go to chapter 28 and you read verses 2 and 3, the beginning of chapter 28. Hananiah, the false prophet, is actually giving a false prophecy in the name of the Lord. And he says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. And he says, within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took from this place and carried to Babylon. What this false prophet says is essentially this, and the word gets back to the exiles who are in Babylon. And he's essentially saying this, hey, don't get too comfortable. Your stay isn't going to be long. Everything that Nebuchadnezzar took is going to be coming back. And that's the false prophet of God giving a false prophecy and lying to the people of Israel. And that leads us to the exhortation of the letter in verses 4 through 7. 
In verses 4 through 7, there's a transition. We see the background of the letter. Israel is experiencing the judgment of the Lord for their failure to live on mission, for their failure to reflect the glory of the Lord, to be a light unto the nations. We see this dueling prophet scenario going on where Hananiah is telling a lie, Jeremiah is telling the truth, and we see God respond by speaking to the prophet Jeremiah, and he tells Jeremiah, ho, ho. That's not true. That guy's a liar. You need to tell the people of Israel this. In fact, you need to write a letter and you send this letter to the exiles who are living in Babylon. And if you look at verses 4 through 7, I want you to open your Bibles and start in verse 4. It says, this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. And if you go through that text, there's 11 Hebrew imperatives. An imperative is a command. And what we see in this text is 11 commands, and this is why it's very important for you to notice. In the entire chapter, there's only 12 imperatives. If I look at chapter 29 and I break down all the Hebrew imperatives, which are the Hebrew commands, 11 of those imperatives are in verses 4 through 7. And if you're studying Scripture and text, that's a lot of imperatives in one short section of Scripture. And there's a lot of imperatives. What is God saying? God is speaking. It's an exhortation here that God is speaking to Jeremiah to say, you give this message to the exiles who are in Babylon. And I don't want you to miss this. When I read this passage, and I want to always interpret Scripture correctly because Scripture should be interpreted in context and it should be interpreted in the way of the meaning that it had in that day. But I read this passage in context. I think there's something we miss so often. God gives his people who are living in Babylon a strategy for missional living while they're there. That's what he does in his passage. It's a strategy that God gives the nation of Israel for living in the context of Babylon. And I think there's some incredible lessons you and I can learn today. As God spoke to his people thousands of years ago about how they should live in the day and time that that they lived in, that we too live in the day and time that we live in. Because there's a lot of similarities when you think about the picture of Babylon in the Bible. It's seen as a place of wickedness, evil, Satan, all things bad are Babylon. And we see that God's people are right there smack dab in the middle of Babylon, and God says you need to do this. Here's the 11 imperatives. See if you can keep up and track real quick. My kids tell me I speak too fast, but here are the 11 imperatives that you've got in Jeremiah 29. God says build houses. God says live in those houses. God says plant gardens. God says eat the fruit. The first four imperatives, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat fruit. I've always thought Lloyd Ogilvie had the best explanation of this. He says this, anyone thinking he was going back home in two years might not make these kind of commitments. Remember the false prophet said they're coming home in two years. Here they're being told to roll up their sleeves and get to the busyness of living. Theirs was going to be a long exile. As the saying goes, bloom where you are planted. They were to be just as active, as fruitful, and as industrious as if they were not in captivity. That's what those words are pointing to, that they're going to be there a little while. The next five imperatives are take wives, have kids, take wives for your sons to marry is the seventh imperative. The eighth imperative is give your daughters away in marriage. And the ninth imperative is multiply, have a bunch of kids and a big family. We look at that and it's a little strange to us because We don't associate God's blessing often in our culture with family. And in ancient times, a sign of God's blessing, 
a sign of God's hand was family. And, and the picture of the family, the size of the family even, was a testimony to others that there was a Lord and that God was gracious and that God was good. And we see in Scripture that the testimony of family is often seen as a picture of the blessing and the favor of the Lord. It's something special about that. We see this and we say, that just sounds kind of odd. Who wants to have that big a family? In ancient times, it was a sign of the Lord. In the ancient times, it was a sign of God's blessing. And I just want to make a note to you here. How does that translate into the day and time we live in? I think it translates this way. The majority of imperatives in this text deal with family. And what I would tell you is this, in the day and time we live in, one of the most missional things we can do is get gospel-centered families and marriages right. Because I believe what God knows, because God is sovereign and what he's telling his people here, that as how the family goes, as how the witness of God goes in the culture that they're living in. And he's telling his people that here in this text, focus on your family, focus on your family. And, and that focus on the family is a picture to that watching world of who God is. I really believe the most missional thing we can do today is strive for gospel-centered marriages and family that live out a biblical worldview. And I'll tell you why, it's countercultural. Don't miss that five of those imperatives have to do with family. Here's the last two imperatives. The 10th imperative says, seek the welfare of the city. The meaning there literally means pursue the well-being. Seek the peace when you think about that word there. Seek the welfare of the city. Work for the good of. Do good works. The Israelites were to be doing good works in Babylon. The best way that I can capture this picture. So if you think about an Israelite, Israeli who's living in Babylon during this time, they've been ripped away from their home. They've been taken away as a captive. They're living in captivity. One of the best ways that I could say this would come across to the Israelites who are hearing this message for the first time in Babylon would have been like this. It would have been similar to telling a Jew in World War II to move to Berlin and seek the welfare of the Nazis. That's about the gravity of what Jeremiah is telling these captives who are in Babylon. Could you imagine how crazy that would sound to a Jew with all the atrocities that the Nazis did to the Jews? You have these Babylonians who have taken them. They have taken them from their city. They put them in captivity. And God is telling his people to seek the welfare of these people. It's a stunning message when you think about it. And here's the 11th imperative, the last thing it says. He says, pray for the city. Seek the welfare of the city, but pray for the city. Pray for the city of Babylon. Philip Ryken gives the best picture here. And he writes, Imagine the reaction when Jeremiah's prophecy was read in the Jewish ghetto of Babylon. There, God's people were languishing in captivity, bemoaning their fate, complaining about the crime rate in the wretched Babylonian city school system. But God gave them a hard sell. You're going to love this place, he said. Wonderful place to raise a family, exciting opportunities for small business, great location right in the heart of the Fertile Crescent. One senses God's passion for urban planning. Yet he was talking about the city of Babylon of all places. His surprising plan for the redemption of the city meant building the city of God smack dab in the middle of the city of man. 
No doubt when the captives discussed their sojourn in Babylon, they used words like abandoned, banished, or condemned to describe what God had done to them. But that's not how God saw things. He viewed the exile as a mission. Literally, what he was saying was, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have sent you. Nebuchadnezzar did not take them to Babylon. God sent them there. The exiles were not captives. They were missionaries. God's plan was for his people to flourish in Babylon and stun the unbelieving culture. How could prisoners and exiles flourish in a Babylonian context? Because of the mighty God they serve. That's how they can do that. The same way we can. Here's the admonition of the letter. The admonition of the letter is in verses 8 and 9. In verses 8 and 9, Jeremiah essentially says, don't believe liars. He's calling out Hananiah, the false prophet, who is lying to the people of Israel. And Jeremiah says, don't believe liars. The Israelites were listening to the wrong voice in this passage. I don't think you should miss that. The voice of Hananiah was the voice of a liar. Jeremiah was speaking on behalf of the voice of the Lord, by the way. John chapter 8, verse 44 says, you are the father of the devil. Your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks about his own character. He is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus talking about the devil. John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Here's something that I just want to challenge you with this morning. There's still a liar out there. His name's the devil and he is lying to you today. He is lying to you. He's lying to the church. That's his job is to lie. He hates you. He hates the church. He hates your family. He hates the things of God. And we, and sometimes in our Baptist life, don't take spiritual warfare and unseen things real. I want to encourage you. There's still a lying voice out there. Don't believe that voice. Believe truth. And for us in the day and time we live in, this is what I found out. There are many voices that speak into your life. Make sure you're listening to the right one. There are many voices speaking into your life. Make sure you're listening to the right one. We see this picture of the admonition of the letter. Here's the fourth thing in verses 10 through 14. We see the hope of the letter. The hope of the letter. Verses 10 through 14. Let me read it to you again real quick. For this is what the Lord says when 70 years of Babylon are complete. I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declarations, plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. I know many of you have seen that passage. We use that passage in a lot of places, and I'm not disparaging using that passage in a lot of places. It's an encouraging passage. But let me make sure you understand what the audience is experiencing when they get that passage. (laughs) The people that are getting this message are in captivity. (laughs) They have been taken away from them. It doesn't look like there's a good hope for them, friends. It doesn't look like God knows what's going on in the future. It looks pretty depressing if you're an Israelite and you're in Babylon. And they get this message, and I just want to point you to this. Those people that got this message weren't in good circumstances at all. That hope is more than just a hope for that moment. That message of hope is something greater. I I love reading through the chronological Bible. I try to do it every couple of years, to read through the Bible chronologically. And one of the times years ago when I'm reading through the Bible chronologically that was just a a huge moment for me, 
is I'm reading through Nehemiah and I'm, I'm walking through the incredible story of how God is preparing Nehemiah to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. And I'm thinking about all the things that have to go in that and why is it important. And then later on in the year, I'm reading about the triumphal entry. And I'm reading about Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. And I'm just thinking for a moment about all these chronological things coming together in the Bible and how that story in Nehemiah had a great meaning. Rebuilding those walls of Jerusalem were really important because Jesus was going to come through those walls. Amen? And when I think about the Bible, the hope of the letter was that God would save a remnant. When you think about the hope that is mentioned at the end of this book, the hope of this letter was that God would save a remnant that would be sent back to rebuild a city that would host a Savior who would be the Redeemer of the world. The hope there to look for is Jesus. That's the hope of the letter that Jeremiah has given them. That hope is Christ. Tim Keller says this, there are in the end two ways to read the Bible. It's either about you or it's about Jesus. I believe all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ, his coming, his life, his return. Jesus was the ultimate hope of the Israelites living in Babylon, by the way. That was the ultimate hope of that letter. And as I think about that text, and I think about breaking down that text, we see the background, we see the imperatives, the exhortation, we see the admonition, we, we see the hope of the letter. I want to give you, I want to close out. I think application is super important. Sometimes we preach the Bible and we don't leave people with some things to really take to heart and to do. And I want to challenge you with five applications. And this is how I came up with five applications. Jeremiah gives 11 imperatives. I'm only going to give you five. Amen? So I'm cutting them less than half. Five imperatives. Here's, here's the subtitle. Five imperatives for embracing your purpose as an everyday missionary. Five imperatives for embracing your purpose as an everyday missionary. I'm going to tell you all a little funny real quick before I get into these. And I know I got time, all right, I got a time schedule here. Um, well, a sweet, sweet uh, lady is here that I taught uh, school with. Her name's Miss Brenda West. She's over there sitting. And I'm thinking right now that I'm talking too fast and she's going to get on to me because I'm talking too fast and she's going to have a word with me when I get through with this sermon. Miss Brenda, don't do that. I'm trying to get it all in. <laughs> Five imperatives for embracing your purpose as an everyday missionary. Let me give you real quick an everyday missionary. An everyday missionary are those who practice life on mission where God has placed them. An everyday missionary are those who practice life on mission where God placed them. That's from the book Life on Mission. I didn't come up with it. Everyday missionaries are those who practice life on mission where God has placed them. I want to challenge you to be an everyday missionary right where you are. Here's number one, your first imperative. Repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. Repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. I can pretty much guarantee you the Israelites didn't want to be in Babylon. I can pretty much guarantee you they were mad at God for being there. Here's the first words they read when that letter is opened up. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Do you know the first things they hear when that letter is read and they're hearing? The first things they hear, which I think they're mad, I think they're upset, I think they're discouraged, they're depressed, I think all those things are going along because they think God has forgotten them and God has abandoned them. But do you know what God says? I put you there. That's what the Lord says. Where you are is because of me. I put you in this place. And here's what I want to challenge you with when I start out with repenting against, <laughs> repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. It's just simply this. Some of us are 
discontent with our life, location, and purpose. And we're mad at God about it. It's impossible for you to be on mission with God if you are dissatisfied and content, discontent with your life, location, and purpose. It is impossible for you to be on mission with God if you are dissatisfied and discontent with your life, location, and purpose. God is a sovereign God. He knows who you are, he knows where you are, and he knows what he's called you to do. And we need to repent from rebellion against God's sovereignty. When we're mad, when we're discontent and dissatisfied with our life, location, and purpose, you know what we do? We hold our fist up to the Lord and we say we know better than you. That's why you need to repent. When we are dissatisfied and discontent with our life, our location, our purpose, we are holding our fist up to a sovereign God and saying, we know better than you. You got it wrong, Lord. God didn't get it wrong, friends. We spend much of our lives wishing we were someone else, living somewhere else, doing something else. God, God sovereignly knows who you are. He knows where you are, and he's given you a purpose to live for his glory. Friends, embrace where you are for the glory of the Lord. I left a wonderful church in North Mississippi. I'm from here. I sat down here and cried just a minute in the worship. And I don't know why I was crying, really. I think it was just because so much of what I see here and so much of what's around here reminds me of, of living here for most of my life. I've been in New Orleans for 10 years, but North Mississippi's home for me. And, and you guys know you just wish you were in North Mississippi. But anyway, um, <laughs> this means so much to me. And, and I left a great church. I left a great great family, a great support environment, and took a job to be a, a missionary in New Orleans. I, we knew God called us. And I can remember driving. I'd been in New Orleans for almost a year, and I was driving down a street. New Orleans is not like North Mississippi, by the way. And I started crying. And I started crying because I was miserable. I didn't have any friends there. It was really hard to make friends or starting out. New Orleans has some struggles sometimes you got to get used to. And I just thought I made the biggest mistake of my life. And I can remember pulling off of Elysian Fields because I couldn't see because I was crying so hard. And I had my head on my steering wheel. And I said, Lord, I missed you. Lord, I messed up. God, I'm so sorry. And I was just lamenting and crying and feeling sorry for myself. And that very day, I started my chronological reading in Jeremiah chapter 29. That was my day. And I, listen, it wasn't audible. I saw somebody ask Dr. Rogers if the Lord spoke, spoke audibly to him, and he said this. He, he said, it's much louder than that. It wasn't, it wasn't audible. It wasn't handwriting on the wall, but this is what the Lord loudly said to me through his word. I called you there. I put you there. And I want to tell you one of the greatest things happened to me. My wife and I got on our knees, and we began to repent of our rebellion against a sovereign God who called us to New Orleans. And I can't tell you how God has used that obedience to give us a heart and a passion to live for him in the city that care for God. And we are so grateful for that. So, friends, I want to encourage you. If you're discontent and dissatisfied with your life, your location, your purpose, if you wish you were someone else living somewhere else doing something else, repent. God knows who you are, where you are, and he's called you to live for his glory right where you are. Here's number two, resist the American dream. It is impossible to be on mission with God if the most important thing in your life is the American dream. Resist the American dream. It is impossible to be on mission with God if the most important thing in your life is the American dream. Don't live for your kingdom, live for his kingdom. May 20th, 2000, right down the road from here, at the Memphis, Tennessee Passion Conference. These words were first given out publicly by John Piper. I will tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. 
consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy, he says. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you and I to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. Friends, don't live for the American dream. Live for the kingdom dream. The American dream is all about you. The kingdom dream is all about God. Stop building your kingdom and get on board with the kingdom agenda. Join God in building his kingdom. God doesn't need us, but he asks us and calls us to be a part of what he is doing in the world today. Because friends, make no doubt about it. One day the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord. And all of creation will be keenly aware that all worldly and earthly dreams will end and the kingdom of Christ will have no end. John saw a glimpse of this revelation. The seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. The 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell face down and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to Lord God, the Almighty who is, who was, because you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Let me tell you for certain, Jesus will rule and reign physically one day. And make no doubt about it, he's ruling and reigning right now. And he's calling you to get busy living as a kingdom person on mission for his glory. That's what God is calling us to do. Don't waste your life, friends, investing in the wrong kingdom. There is an ocean of regret among Christians who realize at the end of their life the American dream was a lie and the kingdom of God is now real. Brothers and sisters, don't waste your life. Here's number three. Reject the outrage culture. We should be the most hopeful people on the planet. How do you live as an everyday missionary today? Reject the outrage culture. We should be the most hopeful people on the planet. I don't want to dive into all this, but if you haven't noticed, Christians are having a hard time looking very hopeful today. We're mad at everything. Outrage doesn't manifest Christ-likeness and rarely produces converts. Outrage doesn't manifest Christ-likeness and rarely produces converts. The lost world is not the enemy. It's the mission. The lost world is not the enemy. It is the mission. There's basically four ways to respond to our culture. You can run away from it. You can fight it. You can join it. Or I can believe, or I believe you can be like what the Bible calls us to do and be an exile in it. You can run away from it. You can fight it. You can join it. Or you can live in it like an exile. I choose to be an exile and manifest a living hope. That's my choice. I choose to live like an exile and give a living hope because Christ lives in me. 
Reject that outrage culture, friends. Christians ought to be the most hopeful people on the planet. We know Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's coming back again one day. Nothing will stop his church. The devil will not win. Culture will not win. Jesus will rule and reign. And we ought to live with the most hope of anybody on the planet. And it ought to be something that is seen, friends. Last thing I would give you. No, two things I'd give you. (laughs) Recognize your opportunities and cultivate an on-mission lifestyle. Here's number four. Recognize your opportunities and cultivate an on-mission lifestyle. Recognize your opportunities and cultivate an on-mission lifestyle. Yesterday was hopefully a taste to your church if you guys participated in Sin Relief. One of the reasons we do those programs is for you to recognize the incredible need right around you that you may not have been aware of. And one of the things I want to encourage you in, don't let that be a one-time event each year. Incorporate that into your life. Live as an everyday missionary because there's such great needs around you. And we live on mission for the glory of the Lord. Don't waste your life dreaming of tomorrow's opportunities and fail to act in faith today. Right here in your community, right here in Collierville, right at your work, right in your home, there's opportunities to live on mission for the Lord. And I want to encourage you to embrace that. Recognize those, recognize those opportunities. Cultivate an on-mission lifestyle. Let it be something that's a lifestyle, not just a one-and-done opportunity. Here's number five, last thing I would give you this morning. Embrace gospel confidence and courage. Be an everyday missionary. Embrace gospel confidence and courage. Be an everyday missionary. Embrace gospel confidence and courage. Be an everyday missionary. There are a lot of Christians afraid to live counterculturally right now in our cancel culture times. There are a lot of Christians afraid to live counterculturally in our cancel culture times. Friends, we can't let culture cause us to be so afraid that we can't live counterculturally. An everyday missionary lives on mission for the glory of God. Let me give you a definition of gospel confidence and let me give you a definition of gospel courage. I think they make a difference. I try to, join and I both try to raise our kids with these two definitions in front of them all the time. Gospel confidence is the fruit of our identity in Christ. Gospel confidence is the fruit of our identity in Christ. I'll sum up your identity in Christ biblically. Your identity in Christ says this, because of Jesus, if you're in Christ Jesus, God accepts you, God approves you, God has adopted you. He's made you you, his very own child. That's the incredible beauty of what it means to be born again. When you were justified, God declared you righteous. Your identity in Christ says you are approved, you are accepted, and you are adopted. The more you know who you are in Jesus, the greater courage you'll have. The more my kids know who they are in Christ, that they are accepted, they are adopted, they are approved. Do you know what that's going to teach them? It's going to teach them they don't have to worry about what culture says. They know who they are in Jesus. Gospel confidence is the fruit of our identity in Christ. I want my kids to have gospel confidence. I want them to know who they are in Jesus. Because gospel confidence produces gospel courage. Gospel courage is the action from our identity in Christ. The more my kids know who they are in Jesus, the more courage they're going to have. 
Gospel courage is the action from our identity in Christ. And friends, we need a generation of people living on mission right where God has placed them, showing incredible gospel confidence and incredible gospel courage. May it be that we manifest gospel confidence and gospel courage. It's a mark of a mature believer. A mark of maturity as a believer is your confidence and your courage in Christ. You may be in here and say, you don't know my past, Pastor. You, God can't use me. I just want to encourage you, don't believe that lie. God's grace gives us freedom from our past and courage for the present. You have all you need in Christ Jesus. J.D. Greer says the Christian life is a call to risk. You either live with risk or you waste your life. Hudson Taylor once said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. I want to challenge you this morning. Get busy living as an everyday missionary. Show gospel confidence and gospel courage. Join God in building his kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, one of my favorite parts of Jesus ascending to heaven. He ascends to heaven. There's angels there. The disciples are there. While he's going, they're gazing into heaven. And suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who's been taken away from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. My translation is this, stop looking up, get busy. Jesus is coming back again one day. Friends, I just want to encourage you, don't waste your life. Live as an everyday missionary right where you are. As the praise team and the band and the staff come up, I want to challenge you this morning to respond to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. My father-in-law is a retired pastor. He gives the best description of an invitation. He said, an invitation is always the opportunity for the people of God to give a verdict on what the Word of God has said. And friends, I want to encourage you, the Word of God has been preached today. And the Word of God has gone out today. What will you do in obedience to respond to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word today? As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to ask you this morning, if you're here, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God tells us in His Word that He loves us so much, He sent His Son, Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. He is our substitutionary atonement. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. You're here this morning, you're dealing with the weight and the shame and the burden of unforgiveness and sin. God loves you, friend. I believe with that with all my heart. And God loves you so much, He sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for your sins. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. My prayer that God would open your eyes and soften your heart, that today would be a day of salvation, that today you would respond in repentance and faith to Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, come down front, share with one of these pastors, talk with one of these pastors. Today you're here, and God has been burdening, burdening your heart with being more active in missions, maybe here locally, maybe at your work. He's called you to live as an everyday missionary, to show that gospel confidence and courage. If you're here today and you need to respond to God's call to live on mission, maybe you just come today and ask for prayer. Maybe you come today and bend your knee in this altar and ask God to forgive you for not living in such a way that reflects His glory. Ask Him to give you the grace and the courage to do just that. I'd ask you to do that today. Maybe you're like a couple that is planting a church in Montana right now. Wisdom Montana, they're the Cottinghams. And I preached this very message at a church two years ago. They sent me a, a letter about a year later said, I want you to know God used this message for us to leave our jobs and get new jobs 
in Montana to go plant a church. And we just want to let you know how God used that message. You may be here and God is putting on your heart to be involved in church planting and missions, called to ministry, whatever it may be. Would today be the day you respond? Maybe you need to join the church. Maybe you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Would you obey the Lord today as we have an opportunity to sing and respond and give a verdict on his word today? Father God, thank you for this sweet family of faith. God, thank you for the leadership here. And God, we thank you for the word that you gave the prophet Jeremiah, Lord, to call your people who are living in Babylon, Lord, to live there on mission for your glory. So God, we pray today that these words that we've heard, God, these challenges we've heard, these imperatives, God, that have been given, Lord, that we would be your people, God, living in the midst of our own Babylon. And God, we would live with gospel confidence. And God, we would live with gospel courage. God, we would repent of rebellion against, your, against God, you being a sovereign God. Lord, we would repent of being dissatisfied and discontent with our life, location, and purpose. And God, we would embrace, Lord, your kingdom dream. God, we'd reject the American dream. God, would you use today's message, God, to get glory. God, call your people to obedience. God, may we respond today. Spirit and truth, we pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said amen.